questions. I think this would be a good time to clarify. Like that one, one it always blows me away is, um, is the watching or observing mind properly aware or only superficially aware? Like the a clarification. Properly so, aware and superficially So one of the... Um, uh, right attitudes for meditation. What number? I think it's... Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, number 16. Is the watching or observing mind properly aware or only superficially aware? Uh, you know, when... If, if you... If I said to you, are you aware that you're walking down the street when you walk down the street? You know, if you just... You know, when you're walking down to the... Uh, the dining room, if I said, do you, do you know you're walking down the dining room? You'd say, you're some kind of idiot? Of course I know I'm walking down to the dining room. But actually, the awareness that you have, is, or the idea that you have of walking towards a dining room, is just the idea of, I'm, I'm going from the meditation hall to the dining room. But not actually experiencing the walking and knowing that you're experiencing at the time that you're doing it. So there can be this general conceptual idea. Yeah, I know. I know I'm walking to the dining room. But that's a superficial awareness. That's kind of a, an idea of knowing that you're walking to the dining room. But it's not the direct experience of feeling the sensations in the body, feeling the sun on the skin hearing the sounds of the birds in the tree, knowing, you know, all of that would not be registered or known at the time of experiencing it. So that would be, that would be the properly aware, just fully knowing what this immediate experience is of walking to the dining room. Actually, when you're fully experiencing, fully aware of walking to the dining room, you don't know that you're going to the dining room. That's an idea. You just know that these are the experiences of moving the body, feeling the temperature, hearing the sounds, things like that. So that would be properly aware rather than superficially aware. So it's a deeper awareness. It's not deeper awareness. It's more. It's so much as it's immediate ex- empirical experience of the the concept walking towards the dining room. Because walking towards the dining room is just an idea, isn't it? But the actual experience involves moving the body, hearing sounds, seeing sights, feeling the temperature, and other thoughts that are going on. Because you may be walking to the dining room thinking about something that happened yesterday and not really fully aware of it. So, fully aware is to know your thoughts, your feelings, your sensations. Yeah. So there's a lot to being properly aware. Yeah. Yeah. I have a question about uh, attitude of mind. Yeah. And uh, you said something earlier today about checking the attitude and then making an adjustment. Yeah. I'm curious about, as I look at this, 19 and 21, um, a light and free mind enables you to meditate well, you have the right attitude. And then 21, get to know the defilements that arise, 
you know, don't try to get rid of anything. So my, I think my question is, when I check my attitudes yes. and I notice there's aversion there, yes. I think I've always thought to just uh, investigate aversion or just know aversion is happening. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm hearing something a little bit about uh, trying to step out of the aversion or make an adjustment from what you said earlier. Yeah, so the question is about uh, how to check your attitude of mind and what do you do with what you notice if you have an unskillful attitude or a wrong attitude or an attitude that's got some agenda in it. So, as we're observing present moment experience, this is my three-dimensional hand instruction, the object arises and it's being known and depending on the momentum of objects flowing they can be just arising being known arising being known arising being known but sometimes what arises for an example may be a very unpleasant sensation in the body and so discomfort arises and that's being known but as soon as it arises that unpleasantness usually conditions an aversive reaction we don't like it we want to get rid of it or we judge ourselves or there's some form of aversion so there's a filter over the mind or arises in the mind of aversion that causes us to look at those sensations in the body that are occurring at that time and only see the unpleasant nature of those. And that's the f- that's what aversion does. Aversion causes us to see only the unpleasant characteristic of whatever we're looking at. So aversion arises, we're looking at sensations, and it's pain, and we don't like it. Okay, so now, that aversion, in reaction to the quality of the object, that aversion, disliking, frustration, whatever, <coughs> that becomes the object to pay attention to. So now we've got aversion being known, aversion being known, moment to moment. And it may, you know, it may appear in the form of a feeling in the heart, it may appear in the form of a thought in the mind, I hate this. Why is this happening to me? You know, some kind of disappointment, frustration and irritation, impatience, many different kinds of aversion. And that's what we're noticing moment after moment. After a while, or even immediately, we may start practicing with an attitude of, I'll look at this thing, but I want to get rid of that thing. You know, and if you, if you look at your, if, if you could look at your face when you're practicing being aware of aversion, you could be you could have a very aversive, you know, you're, you're practicing, I'm looking at this thing, but, you know, I'm, I want to get rid of it, you know. And that, I want to get rid of it, is an attitude of mind that we're practicing. We're practicing with an, with an agenda. I'll look at this thing to get rid of it. Well, that is an attitude of mind. And once you recognize that you've, you've got this kind of posture towards... You're, you're practicing with this kind of posture. It's like, eh? <laughs> then you can go, uh, okay, let me just make an adjustment to 
Settle down. Settle back. Can I look at this aversion with interest and curiosity to understand it? Which is very different attitude of mind than I want to get rid of it. So now, this is the adjustment we make. Can we make the adjustment from I want to get rid of it to I'm interested in this. I want to understand this. So that's where the attitude of mind is. And I, I mentioned to one group, or maybe both groups, yesterday or today, I can't remember, about attitudes of mind appear on your face as an emoji. So when you're practicing at any time, just take a look at your face. You know, just turn around and imagine what your face looks like. And if you put it in the form of an emoji, it's like, you know, you're scowling, you're kind of frustrated, you're kind of like, yeah, fascinated, indulging, or you're, you're kind of focused and kind of curious or skeptical or doubtful or angry, irritated. That's an attitude of mind. That's the quality of mind that you're practicing awareness with. While looking at an object, sensations in the body or mental state, whatever. So we have the object, we have the awareness, we have these filters that are hindrances, defilements, in response to the quality of the object. We also have these attitudes of mind, also defilements, in the form of attitudes of mind that appear in the observing itself. So when we check our attitude of mind, and I'll be speaking more about this uh, tonight, tomorrow. Uh, when we check our attitude of mind, that's where we'll see if we've got some agenda in practice, we've got some project we're making out of practice, or we've got some, you know, kind of striving, uh, frustration, confusion, doubt, in the way we're practicing. Yeah. Is that helpful? Yeah. yeah. Um, this is sort of similar question, I think. Sure. Um, he talks, while wisdom accepts whatever is happening as objects, wisdom does not accept unwholesome qualities in the observing mind. Yeah, so while wisdom accepts... Say that again? Wisdom accepts... Wisdom accepts whatever is happening as objects. Yes. Wisdom does not accept unwholesome qualities in the observing mind. Yeah. Okay, so the, the, the comment from the Dharma Everywhere is wisdom accepts whatever arises as whatever it is. So the object that arises, wisdom in the observing mind... We'll just see it. Oh, this is not, this is something being known. Something being known. Something being known. And what is being known can be wholesome, unwholesome, skillful, subtle, gross, physical, mental, emotional, novel, familiar. It doesn't matter. It, it, when there's wisdom in the observing mind, it accepts everything, anything, as just an object being known. But, as I was just pointing out, if there is some attitude of mind present in the observing, you know, the observing, as, you, as you're practicing, as you're observing, and you've got this attitude of mind, like, 
I want to get it. I want to get what, what's going on here. Well, that's not wisdom. That's striving. So that striving in the awareness doesn't see objects as objects. It has an agenda. Yeah. So my question is sort of, I guess, the traditional understanding of right effort yeah. was to you know, encourage wholesome mind states to arise yeah. and keep them going and then yes. discourage unwholesome. And so how does that fit with that? That's where I'm sort of... So the uh, traditional four right efforts are to arouse wholesome that have not yet arisen, to sustain wholesome that have arisen, to arrest unwholesome that have arisen, and to prevent unwholesome from arising. And how does this relate to what I just said? Yeah. <laughs> I think I need a pencil and paper to kind of figure this out. Um, right. Checking your attitude. When, when you check your attitude of mind, you're checking to see, is there wholesome or unwholesome in the, in the observing mind? Okay. Right? Or when you, when you notice the object, and when you're aware of the object, you may see that there's, you know, this is unpleasant, and if I'm not careful, I could, there, aversion could arise. But because you're seeing this unpleasant experience, it's just, well, this is unpleasant. <coughs> this is unpleasant. If I'm not careful, I'm going to get irritated by it. But if the quality of the observing mind is open, interested, curious, then that unwholesome aversion to the unpleasant experience doesn't arise. So sometimes, sometimes when we have, you know, we, we're, we're sitting and we can feel some sensations in the body that are arising and we know that in a few minutes it's going to be painful. But it's not painful yet. You know, it's just like you've got a 30 second delay or you've got a two minute delay or whatever it is. You know it's coming. It's that place in the back, you know, or the knee or whatever it is. And you can see the mind saying, I don't know. Should I move now or should I move later? <laughs> you know? and, and you can see that, you know, as long as you're just able to be with it as, it's just this, it's just this, it's just this, it's just this. You don't get into fearing that it might get more painful. But you're, you're noticing it, you're seeing it. Mm, this is this has got the potential to be pretty unbearable, but I'm not going to get afraid of it. Because you know, we can just, when you get the first hint of discomfort arising in the body, we can start fearing how much longer before the bell rings. Oh, jeez, it's only been 10 minutes, i got another 35 minutes before the... I can't, I can't possibly bear it. You know, and it hasn't even gotten bad yet. <laughs> you know, but we're anticipating. You know, that, that's that's really letting unwholesome states of mind arise. Or if you're paying attention to it and see that apprehension, you go, whoa, 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 no, no, don't, don't have to be afraid. You'll deal with it when it, when it arises, you, you can deal with it. Yeah. And so that also goes for things like envy and jealousy that you see arising. You don't attempt to change those, you just keep a, an observing mind that's 
If, in a positive state. Yeah, That's if, what I'm trying to do. Sure. Okay. So if, if and to use your example, if envy or jealousy arises and you see it and you know, oh, this is, this is, here's the experience, the filter in the mind becomes envy. You know, I don't want them to have that thing. Mm-hmm. Or jealousy, I want that thing. I want what they got. Or I don't want them to enjoy what they got. That's the difference between envy and jealousy. So when that arises, if you don't see it, of course, then you're, you're lost. But if you see, if you recognize this unwholesome state of mind, and you make that the meditation object, now the experience of envy is being known. So then you can investigate it, and you can say, oh, wow, what is the nature of envy? What is it? What does it feel like in the body? What does it feel like in the heart? What kind of thoughts appear in the mind when there's envy? When I'm looking at the person that I have envy for, oh, how do I see them? Oh. So now you're, you're being mindfully aware of envy, the mental state envy. And if you're just envying someone, that's unwholesome. If you're aware of the envy, that's wholesome. Because it's the awareness that's wholesome. The lack of awareness is unwholesome. So, uh, I think Saito Tejaniya says here in 21, he says, get to know the defilements that arise in relation to the object and keep examining the defilement. That means, don't just try to get rid of that defilement. And I'll speak more about this tonight. Don't just try to get rid of it, but let that, that now becomes the object of your awareness. And if you understand that, oh, I'm observing this unwholesome state of mind with interest to understand it. Oh, because it's understanding the defilements, the nature of the defilements that is going to uproot them from the mind. Mm-hmm. You know, we can temporarily get rid of them, just kind of use an antidote. You got some, you got some aversion? Oh, practice metta. Then... Okay, the aversion goes away, but that's a that's a temporary relief through uh, collectedness of mind. But when we look at the forms of aversion, you look at anger, you look at irritation, you look at impatience. Then you can learn their nature and understand them and yourself differently. Then they never arise, or they less likely to arise. Yeah. On that same kind of topic, when you're looking at something like aversion, yes. and you know and acknowledge that you're suffering, the version has already set in, and yeah. you're suffering. Yeah. And you know the na- you know you're suffering, and you know the nature of your suffering, mm-hmm. and you are sort of uh, investigating the yeah. aversion. Yeah. Um, I was just hearing you say that metta is a way of sort of short-circuiting. And so my question would be, is compassion the same? I mean, are you saying it's, it's a way of sort of... Soothing. Rather than engaging. Okay, so we're talking about 
metta, loving kindness, well, or compassion. Okay, okay, compassion. compassion. Yeah. So compassion, these compassion and metta can be antidotes to any form of aversion. Mm-hmm. Okay. If there's suffering, if you see suffering, you may not be suffering. You you see someone else is suffering, you may not suffer. You you feel you feel compassion. Right. Compassion is I care about your suffering. Right. Uh, it's kind of moving into alignment with it, but you yourself have a wholesome state of mind, compassion, rather than the suffering state of mind that that you are observing. So, in in practicing vipassana for yourself in your own experience if some unpleasantness arises and you're suffering and you're averse and it gets really you get really irritated you get so frustrated you get so angry you just get whatever it is and you're just steaming you can't and you can't be mindful of it because if you try to be mindful of it you just get more inflamed it's like mm, you get self-righteous about your anger then that's so hot that you can't be aware of it. You're just it. You're just you are angry. You can't be aware of being anger. Anger that anger has arisen. So in that case, then you practice loving kindness, chill a little bit. Just kind of calm the aversion down to where you can recognize. Oh, okay, this is aversion that's being known. So you use the antidote of compassion or loving kindness to calm down the when you're overwhelmed by aversion. If you're not overwhelmed, you know, but it's there and you're irritated and, you know, you're in and out of it, and you're in a, then I would say look at or, or take that aversion as the object of your awareness rather than using metta to suppress it. Yeah, I was just thinking if the attitude in the mind is sort of self-judgmental or scolding yeah. Yeah, yeah. or that... Yeah. Bringing in a little kindness. Yeah, 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 yeah. For yeah, yeah. <laughs> attitude can go a long way to kind of pushing through to the immersion. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. That Sairotijaniya, he doesn't teach loving kindness, metta, or compassion as complementary practices to watching the mind or to watching your experience. And he instead explains that if you develop mindful awareness, there will be a fair amount of metta and or compassion in it. And the way I see that, the way I interpret it, the way I speak about that is if you if you consider, okay, what are the what are the qualities of loving kindness? Okay, the qualities of loving kindness are being open to someone, being receptive, being appreciative, acknowledging them, being patient, allowing, being willing to be in relationship with them, and having an appreciative uh, acknowledgement of them. Right? This is this is love. Well, these are some of the qualities of love. Well, all of those qualities are the same. Those same qualities are the qualities of right attitude. Being open. Willing, allowing, acknowledging, patient, tolerant, interested. So if we check our attitude of mind, we will be checking to see if the qualities of loving-kindness and compassion, caring, are there. And if they're, 
if there's a little bit, if if the attitude of mind is a little severe or a little judgmental or a little got an agenda, you can see there's not, you don't have the qualities of loving kindness and, and compassion there. Mm-hmm. So, really, this is how we how we can be practicing awareness with the qualities of metta and compassion as attitudes of mind rather than as an object of, you know, the phrase, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be free of suffering. Right. I mean, that's that's the form of directly arousing metta. Yeah. Thanks. So. I mean, you know, what could be better? As, as Manindra, uh, one of our teachers from India, used to say, what could be better than to have a, have a mind, have your mind be a friend? <laughs> Think about that. You know, if your mind was a friend, it'd be tolerant and allowing and compassionate and caring and patient and willing and interested and, you know. But our mind is usually, it is often severe, judgmental, recriminatory, recriminatory, you know, and judgmental and scolding. It's like, we're not very nice to ourselves sometimes. So, awareness practice leads us to uh, see to recognize those unwholesome qualities of self-relation and to have more patience, more, more of the qualities of loving-kindness and compassion. Yeah. That, I mean, after all, we, 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 you know, we experience some pretty unpleasant conditions in life, whether it's, you know, body aches and pains and emotional challenges of all kinds and to beat ourselves up for that is just like not not being very human not being very nice to ourselves so it's important and i don't mean to just kind of wallow in self-pity because you feel self-pity or to kind of just you know <coughs> marinate in your self-righteous anger i'm not saying that's not being nice to yourself but being aware of your of, of the judging mind, being aware of the self-righteousness, being aware of the, the tendency to wallow in self-pity and things. That's... Being aware is really... You learn a lot about yourself. Yeah. So that raises a question. I'm trying to figure out what the question is. I mentioned you just framed it for me. Um, is what, what is the place of anatta in this practice? What is the place of anatta? Yeah. The, the, that's the... Anatta is the conditional... Uh, not self characteristic phenomena. Um, you know this, this uh, self not self uh, question has bedeviled uh, interested meditators for a long time. So I'm not likely to be able to answer it completely to your satisfaction. But let me just say that uh, we see this characteristic of not self all the time but we don't recognize it. Now, what does it mean when we say something is not self or has the characteristic of not self? I mean, that's such a strange term anyway. It's hard to even know. But it, it means, from this is from the Buddhist text, that it means that this experience is not controllable. You don't control it. Okay, now let's just take that as an example. Because they say... 
if if it was you, if this was yours, if this was you, you could control it. You could say on, off, now, no, whatever. But you can't control it. So you know, you sit down and you say, "Okay, mind, be aware." Does your mind do that? No. You can't control the mind, right? And you tell the body, you sit down, you say, okay, body, be comfortable. Does it do that? No. So you can't control the body either. What makes you think this body and this mind is yours? <laughs> you can't control it. You can't tell it what to do. You can tell it, it doesn't do it. Right? So what, what we are seeing is, wow, this, this, this mind in this body, it's not that they have a life of their own, or they have their own mind. It's like they arise, the experience of the mind and the experience of the body arises due to causes and conditions. Oh, it arises due to causes and conditions, most of which we don't control. Huh, okay. So that means this mind is having this experience due to, well, a lot of causes, conditions, habits, beliefs, assumptions that we have acquired over the course of our lifetime, as well as the immediate circumstances of seeing and hearing, doing whatever it is you're doing with people, and this experience of suffering arises in the mind. Did you make that happen? No. This habit of reactivity was planted in the mind long before you ever had a choice. Thanks, Mom. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> it's not really like that, but the tendency towards aversion and desire and fear and jealousy and envy and all that stuff is in the mind. And if we don't see that, if we don't see the causes and conditions that give rise to it, those states of mind, those states of mind will arise, whether we want them to or not. They'll arise due to causes and conditions when they are when they are right, when they are right or ripe then they'll rise. And, you know, as Sayadu Tejaniya says, the mind is not yours, but you're responsible for it. <laughs> Meaning, we don't control what comes into the mind. You know, I mean, we want to keep out thoughts of, you know, impatience and anger and judgment and, you know, jealousy and envy. We'd love to keep those thoughts out. They rise. Okay, so that's what it means. The mind is not yours. It just stuff arises in the mind, but once it arises in the mind, you got to do something with it. You know, you either act it out, or you recognize that it's unskillful. Try to keep it from try to try to keep from acting it out. That's the practice of sila. Try to keep from obsessing about it. That's the practice of mindfulness. Or try to understand it so that it no longer arises. That's the practice of vipassana. Okay, so if you're practicing with these conditioned states of mind, then, you know, you don't suffer quite as much. But they still arise. Mm -hmm. Until you deeply and understand them so that they no longer arise. You understand the causes and conditions that give rise to them. So, that kind of addresses that element of anatta characteristic. So, so actually, you know, when, when sometimes I hear people say, Oh, I'm I'm noticing selfing and not selfing, and you know uh, I'm noticing in this period of my practice selfing, and I think we're noticing non-selfing and selfing all the time. 
Anytime you're caught in a in a in a obsessive state of mind, a defiled obsessive state of mind, you're selfing. You're creating a sense of self. You're feeding a sense of self that's suffering, that's angry, that's irritated, frustrated, disappointed, whatever it is. That that's selfing. And as soon as you kind of observe it as, whoa, this has arisen due to causes and conditions and it's being observed, and the awareness is observing it so that it's, so that you're not acting it out and you're not obsessing, then you're non-selfing it. Yeah, you're saying, wait a minute, this, this is not me, not mine, not who I am. It has arisen due to causes and conditions and, those, and it is being known. That's not selfing. Oh, I, I kept reading today, it's not your mind, it's not your body. You know, I've read that a hundred times, and I'm sort of trying to really let it sink in. And, yeah. and, and, and what you just said is, mostly what happens to you is not for, uh, based on your mind. Yeah. So, how do you, what's the mostly? What's, what's you know, what part is, oh, is, what? is, is, is you heard some, what, what is it? Yeah. 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 So when I say that most of the causes and conditions that give rise to these um, unwholesome states of mind, for example, are not under our control. The one thing, it's not that we have control so much as I can make it not happen. But you know, you're here on retreat, and you know, as you practice day by day, mindfulness gets stronger. Wisdom gets stronger. Energy gets stronger. Confidence gets stronger, or gets more. You know? How is that happening? You can't, you can't say, okay, I'm going to be totally confident this whole retreat. Have a lot of faith, constant, pure energy, and good understanding the whole time. You can't, you can't do that. But by doing just what we're doing here, the mind is trained. The mind can be trained. It can't be controlled in the sense of telling it what to do, but it can be trained. And the way we train it is, well, it's a very complex process, but first we have to hear right view. We have to hear that it's possible. We have to hear that these defilements are unskillful. They cause a lot of suffering. We have to hear that. If we don't, if we don't hear that, we'll just kind of go through life thinking, it's good to be angry and, you know, to get what I want and, you know, to be competitive. Yeah, yeah. we'll... Until we hear that, hey, this is suffering. Then we go, really? Then we pay attention when we arouse, when we do what we can to plant the seed of awareness in the mind. Ah, then we see. Wow, okay. Then we can begin to see these things. So it's a complex uh, kind of conditioning of hearing about the Dharma, having the aspiration to realize the Dharma, wanting to be free of suffering, along with monitoring our energy, practicing, remembering, observing, understanding, all of that gives rise to some momentum of mindfulness and wisdom from which these states of mind can be seen. And then when we, then when we have a choice, you know, we, we, we can see the impulse in the mind to respond or to react to, you know, something happens. Dum, 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 dum. They ring the bell, you know, you go to lunch, you get to lunch and you see oh, eggplant. Ugh, I hate eggplant. <laughs> ah, yeah, but now that you're totally mindful, you say, "Oh, eggplant." Hmm. 
I wonder if there's any salad. <laughs> no, we don't. We don't get caught in these habitual, unaware reactions because oh, we've planted the seeds of awareness. Awareness is present. We can we can see things differently, and so we make we make wiser choices. We make choices not to suffer, basically, with all of this. What we hear of the Dharma, what we practice the Dharma, what we see of ourselves, we make choices once we see the mind, whatever arises in the mind, we make choices to stop suffering. That is to exercise restraint from acting them out, exercise awareness by, by being aware rather than indulging in these unwholesome states of minds, and then understanding them. So, what we, what, it's not that we can control the causes and conditions, but we can cultivate mm-hmm. qualities of mind. I say we can cultivate at the relative level. It's we, it's me. Nobody else is doing this mindfulness here. You're doing your mindfulness, I'm doing my mindfulness. But even then, we can't control that. But we can nurture the conditions to grow in mindfulness and wisdom. If you never hear the Dharma, then good luck. Yeah, and, and of those who do hear about the Dharma, yeah, only very few practice. And of those who practice, a lot don't practice steady enough to get the benefit. But we've heard the Dharma, we have the opportunity to be to guide, be guided in the Dharma, we can practice the Dharma, and we can see even a little bit for ourselves. Even in the course of a, a retreat like this, you can see, wow, you know, things things change. You get you get more aware, you get more patient, you get more tolerant. You get more understanding, even in a nine-day retreat. So just extrapolate the benefit of nine days through the rest of your life. Not insignificant. Yeah. Um, one of the features of the Buddhist teachings or drama that uh, I find helpful a lot is to remember impermanence. So how does that fit with what we're talking about here? in terms of right attitude dealing with aversion or grasping. Um, So the the teachings on impermanence is helpful. Yeah, the Buddha said, you know, even if you lived with your heart imbued with faith in the Buddha Dharma Sangha, or you lived with your, your mind just totally filled with loving kindness all the time, it would be better, the Buddha said, to have a single moment of realizing the impermanence of experience. Now, why is that important? It's important because we live our life in the practical, conventional reality, trying to create security for ourselves. We want to be happy. And so we do what we think will make us happy. We get an education, we get a family, we get our house or car, we get a job, we get some money in the bank, we get everything we can. We take our vitamins, we do our yoga, we get some aerobics in every so often, occasionally, you know, to try to be, to try to keep things from getting worse. (laughs) And guess what? It's impossible. Nevertheless, you do the best you can, you know, but things change. Things change due to conditions that we can't control. So, growing in this understanding, not just having the idea, things change, oh no, oh my goodness, uh, I'll never be secure and safe and 
Well, that's true, but we don't have to. <laughs> we don't have to be afraid of that. We can actually live with this understanding. Things change at the at the most pixelated level of our mind and body, let alone in the world at large. And even just knowing that things change can, and really, really seeing it in the world around us, can help us make wiser decisions. Help us have a more tempered reaction or response to the unpredictability of conditions in our life. Uh, but when we when we live from this place of everything is changing momentarily, then we have a lot more wisdom. We just we just make wiser choices. We don't expect. We don't demand that people don't change, things don't change, I don't change, the body doesn't change. I mean, none of us should ever be surprised when we get a diagnosis that's painful to hear. We shouldn't be surprised. We really shouldn't. I mean, that's the nature of the body. It's not your fault. It's not, it's not like you've done something wrong. It's, it's, you know, this, is, this is how it is. But it's so hard to live in alignment with the way things are. And so what the Dharma, Dharma practice is learning to really see clearly the way things are and to live in harmony with the way things are because that's when we stop suffering. Right? So we can use this, the, even the conceptual, the conventional, conceptual understanding of impermanence to support making wise choices in life, making wise choices in practice. You come in, you sit down, and after 10 minutes, the body's screaming in agony. If you didn't know of impermanence, and you thought, this is the way it's going to be for the rest of my life, it would be a short one, a short life, because you wouldn't stand it. Okay, so knowing that things change, okay, today it's a little bit rough, you know, the mind is really tumultuous, or this sitting, the mind is tumultuous, it's really reactive. Next sitting, you come in and wonderful. Or as one of, our, one of my students said, nothing like a good sitting to ruin the rest of your day. <laughs> because, you know, you come in and wow, just out of luck, you have a good sitting before breakfast or after the first one after breakfast. And then you think, wow, wow this is good. This is the way it's going to be the rest of the day or all, the rest of the retreat. <laughs> no, it isn't. <laughs> But we can't help but get that, you know, hope or that, you know. So impermanence is important to hear about, to recognize, and to practice in order to see deeply. If there's any more questions, I'd be happy to entertain them. If not, we can wrap it up here. <clears throat> when we when we ask questions like this and you get answers, it helps to clarify your understanding so that hopefully you can practice with more knowledge and wisdom. It isn't knowledge, it isn't wisdom yet, just to hear it. It's knowledge, it's your own, it's what you're hearing from me or from other sources. And 
but it's 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 hopefully addressing some assumptions or beliefs or wrong understandings that you might have about the nature of practice, the nature of reality, uh, the value of uh, practice. And so it just serves as a way of kind of realigning your beliefs, your assumptions, your effort towards more wisely pra- practicing with more wisdom and skill. Um, it's not just entertainment, of course. I mean, it's fun and it's helpful, but uh, when we use that information, we, we get more and more accurate. And the Buddha said, you know, hearing right view, and even and Utejaniya says, it's, you know, this is the first job of uh, anyone who's going to develop this path of awareness. The first job is you need to hear right view. You need to hear the, the understandings that support practice and the understandings that support uh, less suffering. Some understandings are misunderstandings or assumptions, you know, lead to more suffering. They just do. And when we hear the, the right view or the right understanding, it might be counterintuitive. It might not be what we believe. We might not even want to know that. And yet, if we hear it, you know, even if we resist it or feel skeptical or it's counterintuitive, we've heard it. As we practice, if we continue to practice and practice skillfully with guidance, then our experience, our empirical experience, will come to confirm right view. But if you don't hear right view, you could practice for a long time and never recognize it in yourself. That's one of the peculiarities of the Buddhist teachings. It's, it's, it's not... It's not it's not obvious sometimes, it's counterintuitive. But, so when we hear right view, then we can practice with right view, right understanding, and our practice will, in time, confirm. Yeah. So, can awareness be an object of awareness? So the question is, can awareness be an object of awareness? Because I'm having this experience where I know that awareness is present, mm-hmm. but sometimes the awareness is right on the object. Yes. But then there seems to be a toggle switch mm-hmm. where it shifts, the awareness shifts away from the object. The object is still there's still awareness of the object, yes. mm-hmm. but the predominant object... The predominant knowledge. Or the, the predominant knowing at that time is seems to be a sense of the awareness. Yes. You put that just right. Okay. With a little help. So the question is, can awareness be the object of awareness. And sometimes you'll hear, maybe even myself or others say, you know, being aware of awareness or mindful of mindfulness or aware of the mind in that way. So again, let me, let me try to um, distinguish 
awareness, knowing awareness in that way, from knowing other objects like sensations and things like that. So we have an object being known. The object can be any, any, anything. Any sensation in the body, any thought, any emotion, sound or taste or smell, touch. These are all objects. Anything that can be known is an object. Okay? So what does it mean, most of the time when we are aware of objects, we are recognizing the qualities of the object. So when we're aware of uh, breathing in, oh, we're aware of stretching, pressure, pulsing, vibrating, tingling in the, you know, at the nostrils or in the abdomen, right? So we're aware of the qualities of the object. But you said that sometimes it seems like while observing the object, there's a recognition of this observing. It's like there's awareness of the object, and then there's a recognition of this awareness. So where is that taking place? Is that like over here behind? No. There's not another mind looking at the awareness mind. Right? But it's an understanding. I mean, it seems like that, doesn't it? It seems like there's the object, there's awareness, and then there's awareness of awareness. But actually, the awareness of awareness that you're talking about is the understanding that's in this awareness. It's wisdom. It's the wisdom of this awareness. The awareness that knows the object also has the wisdom of recognizing itself, so to speak. That's where it's in here. It's really unstable. Like in other words, I then craving comes in, grasping comes in, and I want to stay there. Yeah, you want to stay there. I know, I know. I, Sorry. I, 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 <laughs> this is anatta. I see. <laughs> I, you know, I see that I can't. Yeah. No, no, but there, there is a, there is this recognition, isn't there? You know, is there a state where you can just kind of? I mean, if there's no grasping in the mind. Is there a state that's going to be that way forever? Come on. Not forever. <laughs> Not forever. I'm just talking about it. But longer than, you know, 30 <laughs> seconds. Keep, keep practicing. <laughs> I don't have the definitive answer for that. I'm not okay. sure what people's minds can do. But I know for myself, it's pretty elusive. Yeah, it's pretty elusive. <laughs> you know, you can recognize it when it comes. You can, it's, it's, you know. But I think it's like a lot of... Uh, I was talking to someone or a group uh, earlier that... Okay, so I've been practicing now for 40-some years. Mindfulness. Surely, surely, there's been some change in my mind. (laughs) And yet, I still see plenty of opportunities when I'm not very mindful. You know, it's not very continuous. And I think, wow... 40 years of... and still... But what happens is the baseline of... the baseline level of our awareness and understanding grows incrementally. And that's what you get used to. And that's what you get used to. And that's what you get used to. So there's a lot more access. There's a lot more readiness of awareness and, and wisdom to be there. But, you know, the whole training... Excuse me. The whole training of insight practice is to notice when you're not mindfully aware. That's the full. That's the whole 
focus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's notice when you're not aware. So we're, we're really alert to that. Just like, <laughs> you know. Meanwhile, there's all this momentum of awareness going by that sometimes we don't notice. So, you know, the baseline of our awareness and recognizing awareness is pretty, can be pretty steady. You know, but that's not what we're paying attention to for the most part. We should, we should. I mean, and it's, it, in practice it's useful to recognize awareness, recognize the wholesome qualities of mind, because when you, when awareness recognizes and acknowledges wholesome states of mind, they get stronger. When awareness recognizes unwholesome states of mind, they get weaker. Back to all this question about being aware of awareness. Um, I, <clears throat> when my mind gets quiet and I, uh, I start looking at that awareness, um, I don't know how to say this, but <laughs> I want to understand it more clearly and I keep looking at it, uh, I know they're striving, but it just seems like I'm stuck on looking at that awareness and just coming back to it and coming back to it and looking at it. But, um, and then there are times when I feel like I can see it at a little deeper level when I'm more, con- when I'm, when I'm more mindful. When mm-hmm. Or whatever. Mm. Uh, and I notice frustration. <laughs> <laughs> okay. If you're noticing frustration, you're trying too hard. But the, the question, the comment is about uh, recognizing awareness and then recognizing the qualities of awareness, if you will. Awareness has its own qualities. And there is some variety in there. And how to do that? You know, if we... When we just recognize awareness, there's, there's just this instant recognition. You go, I got it. Oh, right, okay. If you try to make it happen, already the trying keeps it out of view. You can't see it. Or if you, if you try to say, Oh, I want to really look at this. You know, you can look at you can look at you know uh, sensations in the body because they're pretty tangible. They're tangible. They have distinct qualities. They have a location. They occur at a certain time. They're very well. They're very gross, if you will. And it's like the mind can get it. <laughs> there's there's something going on there. Thoughts are more subtle than sensations, and they pass pretty quickly. They don't have a location. They don't have a duration. They 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 arise fully formed. You never have half a thought. You know, half a thought is a full thought. Right? It's just like poof, there it is. You got it. And so they're quicker. They're more subtle. They have no location. They don't endure. They're just instantaneous. Oh, so they're. But still, they're pretty obvious, aren't they? Thoughts, emotions, or let's say moods or mental states. They are kind of. They kind of seep into the mind somehow and. At some point, we might become aware of them, although there's plenty of mental states come into the mind that we don't notice. 
you know, we can be just kind of having a sense of ease or a sense of okayness or maybe we've got subtle irritation. We just don't even notice it because they're, they're not like ch- chattering in the mind very loudly. Uh, they don't occur someplace in the body where you can't really put a finger on them. They don't seem to have a beginning or an end. They just kind of somehow, somewhere they, sh- they appear, maybe, and then slowly they fade away. And Okay, so mental states can be more subtle than thoughts. And then when you get to looking at the mind, the knowing activity of the mind, independent of what is being known, that's even subtler still. It's like, it's always happening. And yet, we've lived with this knowing element, or knowing activity of our mind, we've lived with it every day of our life, every moment of our life, and for the most part, we don't recognize it. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) Hello? (laughs) It is, it is amazing. We've been knowing every moment of our life and haven't noticed it. I mean, it sounds kind of counterintuitive, it sounds oxymoronic, or it sounds paradoxical, or something, but for the most part, we're totally fascinated with what's being known, and not recognizing the knowing, the awareness. So once, once, we've, once, we got done, once we're done being fascinated with what's being known, and we start to really spend some time with this awareness, then you can start to recognize the awareness more often and recognize its qualities and when it's there or not there or when, you, when the recognition of it is there. And the recognition of it is wisdom. That's the wisdom piece. Not recognizing it is a kind of delusion. Recognizing it is a kind of wisdom. Be careful about getting an idea in your mind. I'm going to go look for that awareness and... and I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to find it and where it is. You know, because that, that is an unwholesome state of mind, right? That's a very gross unwholesome state of mind. So that's pretty obvious. But it's also being known by this awareness. Okay. So, talking about, you can hear how talking about awareness kind of makes it real, but it may not be so tangible, it's not an empirical, something that you can confirm empirically, but if you never hear anybody talk about awareness, you'll never look for it, you'll never see it. So we talk about it, we read Sayadaw's book about it, and that's why it's so helpful to read the book, because that's all he's talking about is awareness and how to recognize it. It takes a lot of talking, it takes a lot of pointing out, it takes a lot of talking about awareness before we get interested in in it enough to recognize it. So, read the book. You know, just you know, just piece by piece, just now and then, just to remind yourself. Often, there's awareness happening here. Don't forget, there's awareness happening, along with everything else that you're being aware of. There's awareness happening. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.